Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. We are rebooting in our 12th season by revisiting themes from our first season. On this podcast, it was meant to be. Brave audience members let go of inhibitions and followed their destiny to our stage to share stories inspired by the theme, Star-Crossed Love, Stories of Faded Attraction. It's story time. Please welcome Aurora Melman. All right. Well, thank you, Jody. Uh, I'm a writer, not a speaker, so I do have my notes. And uh, first, I'll read the entry, and then I have just a little thing about the fiction, nonfiction aspect of it. So I hope you guys enjoy. Tonight, camp is a windswept, glass-cold mountaintop. Wind swishes tent fabric. I peek outside. My headlamp beam disappears in the dark like a washed-out road. I miss Evan. I'm backpacking alone to prove him wrong. I'm not better off without him. I click off my light. Wait, did I hear something? Close, inches away? Evan, a poet and a liar, once told me noise is you feeling my body's echo. I remember the hiss of his breath. Suddenly, the mountain night ignites, ripped apart. What was that? Something screamed. A cougar? Save me, I think. Panicking, vibrating, even as the realization grabs me. No one will. I sit up, scramble in the tent pocket for cold metal. My knife, it's gone. Fingertips, clawed, just dirt. I withhold my breath, straining to hear over heart rattle. Out there, only the rainfly flaps gently, once. Muted darkness, nothing else. I'm unsure, then it hits me. I screamed, that howl was mine. So this is a fiction short, short story, otherwise known as microfiction. Jody asked me to read the piece, uh, even though we usually don't do nonfiction, as he mentioned. The thing is, this piece is from a longer work, a nonfiction ex- essay. To turn it to microfiction, I took the first paragraph of the original, chopped it a little, added the cougar scream and the antagonist, Evan, and the part where our protagonist figures out that the scream was hers, not the cougar's. The thing is, the cougar scream, it really did happen to me, sort of. Last summer, I hiked 1,100 miles on the Pacific Crest Trail. In May, I camped alone, a few hundred miles in, on the shores of Buck Lake, California. And it's this gorgeous lake with these huge trees, all these old growth cedars. And in the middle of the night, I woke up in my hammock, and then I heard it, this sort of chuck-chuck. It was rhythmic, a strange night bird. And fear shot through me because I recognized that night bird. That night bird was a cougar making one of its many calls. I'd heard it on YouTube. I slept little that night. 
Um, so then there's the part with the scream, and that must be made up, right? <laughs> that part wasn't made up either. <laughs> a month later, 600 or 800 miles north, I was camped alone again on a little lake in Oregon, way out in the wilderness. I hadn't seen anybody in 24 hours. And sometime in the night, I was wrenched from sleep and my hammock bounced and dropped with me in it, yanked by some hand or claw or monster I couldn't even fathom. And I heard screaming then, dark and guttural and low. I was sure the scream came from whatever animal had tried to rip down my hammock with me in it. As the screams subsided, their echoes rolling away, waving out and widening and running off over the lake, only then did I realize that I had been the one screaming in terror. Those were my cries echoing out in the night. I have, hadn't even recognized them. I was hardly awake when it happened, and I didn't feel them leave my body. It turned out in the morning, a knot on my hammock had yanked out while I slept, and so the hammock had dropped about two feet, which was terrifying. The moral of this story, if there is a moral, it's the thing about fiction. And the thing about fiction, it, it is rarely, if ever, fiction alone. It's made up reality woven in new ways, just as nonfiction, otherwise known as story or memory, thinks to our imaginations, often is many parts fiction. Thank you. Please welcome back, Bean. Hi, I'm Jeannie Pearson. Fate. Destined to happen. Turn out. To act in a particular way. That's the easy definition, miniature definition of fate. I've had two big fates in my life. I think you have a myriad of little fates, but a lot of times we don't even see them, recognize them. Maybe somebody cuts you off in traffic. It's a fate. The only control we have is our attitude towards our fates. But my big fates were in February, I think it was the 22nd, in fact. I came back after being a traveling nurse at uh, Port Lavaca, which did me in. I think I'm through being a traveler after I was running the codes. I'm operating out the scope of my practice. I'm not supposed to be the ones running the codes. So I said, oh, I just got to stop this. So I applied back at St. Luke's, and uh, I went to the NICU. I had worked in the adult ICU, and it floated up there when they needed help, and so, nah, let's try that. Well, it was a fate. I stayed there for 32 years. I transported for 23 years. I was clinical supervisor for 15 years. We participated in many um, clinical research. Heidi Alice from Harvard came out and taught us NIDCAP, Neonatal and Individualized Developmental Care Assessment Program nesting babies, the sound, light, everything for them. She came up, taught us three times. 
We were on the research for the jet ventilator, Brunel, down in Salt Lake. We were on the research, University of Michigan, for uh, the oscillator ventilator, meconium aspiration. And we were on their research for ECMO. Put a line in their jugular, put a line in their carotid, take that blood out, do whatever you want to with it. And then I retired. And then uh, it was a wonderful fate to have. My second fate was Danny Peterson. We met in 1977, end of January. I had seen him, uh, my friend Madeline said, hey, you wanna go to play with me? Okay. And it was uh, adaptation. You suffer heart attack, go back three spaces. And I liked this dented-headed fellow, I could tell he wore a cap. It was Danny, you could definitely hear him, never had to mic him. And uh, I thought, oh, I'll try to hustle him at the closing night party. <laughs> it was our friend Dylan Marys, but um, he showed up with another girl. So I, yeah, who cares? And then he called me up on, uh, like it was a Tuesday. I said, hi, this is Dan Peterson, remember me? Yeah. You want to go to Mary's birthday party with me? Okay. So that was on a uh, Friday. No, it was on a Saturday. I had to call him sick for it. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and a bunch of us went to uh, Penn Gillies after work. I was working 311 shift in the adult ICU. And we went to Penn Gillies after work, and uh, he was there. I thought, ooh, yeah. We talked afterwards, and uh, I lured him home to uh, my house. He wants to come over and smoke some hash. Yeah. <laughs> thought he had money. He was driving an Audi. It was his mother's. <laughs> So we went home, got that nasty sex thing out of the way before our first original date. <laughs> Had a first date, picked me up on a Friday, took me home on Sunday. Uh, <laughs> that was our first date. And we were together almost 31 years, married almost 28 years. It was fantastic. I always said, if Dan didn't like you, there's probably something wrong with you. I mean, you could take it with a grain of salt. I believe we're still married. We're just in extremely different time zones. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, John! Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is John Mathai. I'm originally from South Carolina, so bringing a bit of geographic diversity to this crowd, and if you think that's the only type of diversity I'm bringing, you're probably right. Um, so, cool. Um, this, so I grew up in a small town in South Carolina, and the way things work there is your mom or your dad knows someone who knows someone who knows someone, and they're gonna do something for you in return for you doing something for them later. And that is how I got to go to Ecuador when I was in between eighth and ninth grade for a summer. There was a very well-to-do private school in Atlanta, and uh, my school administrator knew their school administrator, and it was essentially a subsidized trip to a foreign country with a bunch of strangers. So I was like, great, I'll do it. Uh, so I show up at the Atlanta airport, and there are five other students that I have never met before, never texted before, I, 
didn't have a Facebook, so I couldn't stalk them. And they're at the gate talking with their parents, saying goodbye. And I walk up to the chaperones, and I'm like, hi, I'm John. And they're like, great, nice to meet you. Where are your parents? And I was like, they dropped me off at the door. Um, I, I don't know. I'm coming back, right? Um, so I go to Ecuador, and I learn Spanish. And there are three guys and three girls. All of us are roughly the same age. And you can kind of see where this is going. And there's this one really cute girl. And like throughout the course of the summer, we're talking in Spanish and in English and getting to know each other better and doing all the fun, young, lovey-dovey stuff that you can do when you're in a foreign country, like go for walks and make out and hold hands. Um, <laughs> and so because we were much, such a small cohort, the chaperones, and like by the end of the session, they had really developed a lot of trust and respect for us. And so we spent the last week at a small beach town in Ecuador, and they were just like, all right, just don't do drugs and don't get pregnant. And I was like, eh, that is the same rules my parents gave me, so I can abide. Um, so we spent the week like hanging out in the hammocks and like hanging out with the locals, and it was great. And you know, I was uh, what in between eighth and ninth grade, like sex was like on the mind, but not front of mind. I was like, mm, I don't know, never done it before. I was the oldest, so I didn't have an older brother or older sister saying, like, do this, don't do this. Um, so I was like, all right, well, we'll see. Um, so we go to Quito, the capital city, to fly home. And we have three days in the capital city. And they put us up at a relatively nice hotel. And all the chaperones are women. And we get into the lobby, and the three guys, we all look at each other, and it dawns on us that one of us is going to have their own room, because there's only two people to a room. And so we check in, and the chaperone hands me my key card, and then hands the other two guys their key cards. And I'm looking at this like, you have got to be kidding me. Like, I am not a lucky person. But this, <laughs> this makes up for it. So we go to dinner. They like take us out to dinner, actually in the hotel, at the restaurant, the whole group. And at this point, like, uh, one of the guys had ended up developing a thing for the niece of the host family. And so like they were a little pair, which was hilarious, because he spoke the worst Spanish, and she didn't speak any English. Um, so it was a purely physical connection. Um, and then there were some like other goings-ons. So we like all hang out, and we watch a movie. And it's fun. And then I start to stumble my way through the conversation of like, hey, you know, maybe if you're interested, would you want to like come back to and there was no like, shh, yes. It was like, no, I'm going to let you finish fumbling your way through this, because uh, this is great. And I did. I finished. She said yes. And so we go back to my room, which had a really nice view overlooking the city. And I put on another movie or whatever. And <clears throat> I will keep this PG-13, I promise. Um, we're in bed, well, on top of it. And I'll never forget. <laughs> I'm on my back, uh, looking up at her, and 
there's just mutual, just like this bloom of understanding and desire and just urgency. <laughs> so we both bolt from the bed and run to the bathroom and she starts vomiting in the toilet and I start vomiting in the tub because I felt like giving her the toilet was the gentlemanly thing to do. <sighs> so we finish with round one and we put our clothes back on. I walk her back to her room and proceed to waddle back to mine. And the whole cohort is bedridden for the next two days with the worst bout of food poisoning I have ever received in my life. We did not sit next to each other on the plane. They managed to get everyone aisle seats for easy bathroom access. And I never talked to her again. Thank you. Jonathan Lithgow, you're up for a slam. Ah, right here. Hi, everybody. So I do have a um, food poisoning story, but mine was in China, so I think we're okay. Um, I'm actually here with my first love. Her name is Abby. She's sitting over there. And we met when we were going to West Junior High School, which no longer exists. Um, but stayed really, really, really close best friends ever since. Um, <laughs> so at first I thought I knew the story I was going to tell. And then I misheard you. And I thought you said fatal attraction. And it went in a whole different direction. Oh, I was wrong. It's faded attraction. Oh, OK, OK, great. So with faded attraction, that got me thinking. And you know, I think all of us think of faded attraction, and we hope to find what these two found. And I think we all hope that we don't see tragedy and that we don't see the heartbreak. But I think that's the thing, is that I think when we get to our stories and it's not exactly the happy ending, I think really we have to wonder if our story is over yet. So I'm a Boise guy, uh, went to Bora High School, my dad went to Bora High School, my mom went to Boise High School. We've been here for forever. Um, and I met my wife about 15 years ago now uh, at Boise State. She walked into my political science course and couldn't take my eyes off her. I think I turned around and I looked at her walking to the back seat and I just stared. It was one of those things where you couldn't resist. And I'm kind of forward and I kind of just jump into things. So I, in the middle of the, the break, I ran up next to her and I said, so, are you going to sit down, are you going to move down by me, or should I move up by you? <laughs> and in that momentary stall, I said, I'll grab my stuff. I grabbed my stuff, I moved up, and we started dating immediately. Within two months, we knew that we were going to get married. Within four months, we were engaged, and a year later, we got married at the Boise Botanical Gardens. And to wrap this into a five-minute story, it's a much longer story. But, but part of me was I grew up super conservative Christian at um, going to Euclid Avenue Church of the Nazarene, downtown North End, Boise. And I learned two things. One, on one hand, I learned about the truth about love, how to love your fellow man, 
how to love God, and how if you do those two things, you've done everything right. But I also learned that I was a sinner and that I was a really terrible person because I was gay and there wasn't a place for me in the society that I saw. And so I thought that to be a good person, I was to live a good life and to do the things that people expected me to, to live and appear to be a holy person. So I looked for that perfect girl, and when I found her, I married her, and I said, this is God's plan. This is what my fated attraction was. And if I stay honored and committed, then I will be a good person, and I will leave the world being a good person. For 12 years, we were happily married. We had two boys, two beautiful, beautiful, wonderful boys, now 14 and 11. But one day, when we were living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, moved there for a job, my seven-year-old came home. He was winding himself up on the swing set and letting himself go. And he was telling me about his new friends that he met at school. And he laughed and he said, you know, I have this one really funny friend. We're kind of interesting friends because, well, one time we accidentally kissed. And I said, what? What do you mean? And he said, well, you know, he was twisting up on the swing and we slipped and we kissed. And, well, we've done it like 11 times since. It's very... <laughs> He's a very specific, mathematically-minded kid. And I thought, huh. But see, I believed that things like sexuality were all learned. And I believed that if I raised them right and protected them, they would never be tempted in the way that I was. And to hear him say that this had happened, I thought, what have I done? I have done so many things for the last eight years to make sure this moment never happened. And from that moment, I got scared, and I got worried, and I started studying. And I remember doing some research and finding out that kids that come from rejecting families have a 65% chance of attempting to take their life when their families reject them. I couldn't accept him. I was in a place that all I could do was deny and to push it away and to use the only two tools that I knew, which was shame and judgment, to try to make sure that he never followed through with that. So I thought about it for a while. And one day, driving on my way to work, the rain was pouring down. I still remember the song that came on. It was Josh Howard, um, The Kingdom. And as the song was coming up and down and crescendoing, I realized what could happen. In that moment, I was transported to 10 years in the future. I saw myself in this imagined place at being at the funeral of my kid who had tried to take his life and had because I had been too weak to stand in front of my own shame and to address what was going on for me. The tears poured. I don't know how I got through the day. But at the end of the day, I came home and I pulled, and I pulled who was the love of my life out of our boy's bedroom, saying the prayers for what I knew would be the last time because I knew that she, would, she wouldn't be able to stay after that. And I told her, that I was gay, and she didn't believe it. And it took us six months of fighting to figure out that we had to end, and she ended up moving back to Boise. It's taken me another five years, moving from Pittsburgh to New York to DC to Hong Kong, to finally have a chance to get back home near my boys. And I'll tell you, this, I think, is the reason of my fated attraction. It wasn't to have the perfect love story. It wasn't just to experience heartbreak, but it was to learn the truth about what I learned back at that Christian church down in the North End. Not only is it all about loving each other and loving God, 
but there is no love greater than that person that lays down their life for someone else. And it was only the love of my son that was powerful enough for me to blow up the perfect life that I created and to come ter to terms with my biggest fear and face it so that he didn't have to. And that, as hard of a journey as it has been, is worth it all. Please welcome Abby Stimson. Abby. I just want you all to know that I just looked at Jonathan. I'm the first love in middle school. And I said, there's no way in hell I'm going to get called up. Challenge the universe. <laughs> First mistake. Um, this is my first storyteller's night. I've never been to an event like this. Um, I've definitely never spoken uh, to a crowd, so I feel a little nervous. I'm not as eloquent as he is, um, but I do have a story to tell. So uh, I... I've been married for 20 years. I have five beautiful boys. And um, our youngest the other night is seven. And he said, Mom, how did you know? How did you know that Dad was the one? And I said, Jack, I didn't. <laughs> I actually, actually thought he was really cocky. And with no like good reason. Have you ever met someone that's just like so full of themselves and you're like, what am I missing? Like, you're like, I mean, like, good for you. Confidence is good. Like, congratulations. But, like, what am I missing? Um, that was my first impression. We met uh, through mutual friends. And I remember um, Jonathan and I had actually just broken up for, like, the umpteenth, bazillionth time. What we didn't understand was that we were best friends. And now it all makes sense. But, uh... <laughs> really. <laughs> so, anyways, my mutual friends wanted to get me out of the house because I was feeling sad, and they were like, come to this party, and I was like, I don't really want to, but I will. And uh, they came and picked me up, and they said, there's this guy there, and he's just kind of annoying, kind of cocky, kind of full of himself, just ignore him. And then they were telling me about some of the other people at the party. Well, we show up at the party, and this guy walks up to me and instantly starts talking to me, and he's wearing a Mr. Rogers t-shirt. And on the front, it says, can you say nifty? And on the back, it's got Mr. Rogers giving you a thumbs up, saying, I knew you could. And uh, my girlfriend's like, no, that's, that's him. And I'm just like, great. So I, I don't know how to be rude. It's not something I was blessed with, so I'm trying to be polite and cordial. I'm like, okay, like, thank you. So um, we visit very briefly, and then I enjoy the rest of the party, and I don't really pay much attention, but he keeps kind of popping up here and there. Um, how do you massage my shoulders? That would have been the end of the night, but uh, that was another day. So... Anyways, uh, I 
I wanted to go home. I still was just, you know, I was young and heartbroken and very dramatic about the whole thing. So I just wanted to go home and wallow in my, my pity. And uh, I told my girlfriend, you know, I'm going to go to the bathroom and then I want us to go. And so when I was in the bathroom, he goes up to my girlfriend and he looks at my girlfriend Jessica and he's like, give me your friend's number. And she's like, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> you're not even her type. <laughs> and uh, then Jessica gets up to go do something. He looks at my friend Nanette and he's like, Nanette, just give me a shot. Give me a shot. Give me your number. And she's like, look, I'll give you your number, but don't tell her. I gave you her number. <laughs> she loves to take credit for the fact that we've been married 20 years. Loves to, and I'm like, you're the girl who didn't want anyone to know you gave him my number, so. Anyways, um, long story short, I remember our first date and we went to um, Cafe Olay, of all places, not super romantic. <laughs> But I remember us just talking, and he felt like an old friend. And I had never dated someone that looked at my eyes when I was talking. I had never um, experienced someone wanting to know my story, who I was, why I was the way I was. And it, it was really overwhelming. And I remember going home, and... Um, telling my mom about it. And my mom said, you know, be careful. Those are, that's how it starts. <laughs> I didn't like that because I was, I was very young. I wasn't looking for anything serious. But this, this young man was persistent. Um, one thing about my husband is if he, if he wants something, he will achieve it. He's He's driven. He's the most cocky nerd I've ever met in my life. <laughs> you guys, nerd. Like, he totally, like, he watches, like, this cartoon called Naruto. I'm not even sure if I'm saying it right. And I'm like, what are we watching right now? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. See, I'm already offending someone in the crowd. I'm sorry. He's like, it's such a good show. It's all about family. And I'm like, it's just really dramatic. <laughs> But I love it, and our, like, our opposites blended so beautifully. And uh, I recently thought back to, I, I had a father that I've lost from cancer. I've lost a mom and a sister to suicide. I've had a lot of, a lot of heavy, tragic things happen in my life. And I was thinking the other day about the way we perceive what we're given in this life, the challenges that we're given. And, and it occurred to me for everything that I've lost, I've been given in my children and in my relationship with him. And the fact that we're 20 years into this and he still hides in the closet and jumps out and scares me. <laughs> he knows not to say sorry with flowers, but with a big, yummy sandwich. <laughs> When I am Oompa Loompa pregnant, he tells me I've never looked more beautiful. Um, I'm going to wrap it up with what my mom's advice to me was, is that you know you found your person when home no longer is a place but a person. All right, Sam Lewis.
You're next up, Sam. So I just found out about Story Story this afternoon uh, by my girlfriend, and thank you to Safiyu, uh performing tonight. And a number of themes that people touched on today are things that I wanted to talk about, but I was going to start with, uh, with dating apps. And just a couple of years ago, I was married happily, and I'm thinking about people trying to meet through dating apps, and I'm like, how does that modern dating work? I, I don't know. Thank God I'll never have to know. And then I find myself in the throes of a divorce, and that was in 2020. And I came across um, OkCupid. Okay Heard about it from the minimalists on their podcast. It said, met someone great, and I said, all right, I'll try that one. And um, I knew I wasn't emotionally available, so I thought, all right, I'll swipe. So I, let's figure out how this whole modern dating works. I'd met every other girl at school before. <laughs> so it was all new. Uh, the divorce hadn't gone through yet, but I was just trying. I was like, what is this going to look like? I'm not there yet, but all right. Got to prepare. And so I dated a couple of women, wasn't emotionally available, and I knew that was gonna, how it was going to go. And then it was, uh, my divorce had finalized, it was later in the year, I'm still not looking for anybody. And I thought, all right, I'll get back, I'm going to try this swiping again, it's fun, you know, you're swiping, 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 swiping. And I come across this one, and I'm like, oh, she's, she's cute, right? Look, looks like we got some things in common, Okay. And we end up chatting. And she says, well, I swiped on you back in February, which is actually two years ago this month. And we got to know each other. And when we talk about faded to be together, find a lot of things that we have in common that are very interesting. She's six days older than me. We're both born at St. Luke's. And we have a running joke that we were high-fiving as our moms. My mom was going in. Her mom was going out. She so was a C-section. They stayed a few days. So, right, we met six days. Pretty close. We think there was a high-five. And then we found out that, you know, she went to Silver Sage. I went to Amity. We grew up in similar areas, but not quite the same. And then we're talking about her brother going to Indian Lakes Pool, and I swam there every day, every summer growing up. And we found out just through discussions, we'd probably cross paths a whole lot of times. And then we were talking just the other night, a couple nights ago. And depending on how old some of you are, you might remember this movie. The, the Commitments. Does anybody remember the movie The Commitments yeah. from the 90s? <laughs> Early 90s. We were like nine years old, and somehow our parents were watching it. And we're like, let's watch this depressing movie about music and musicians and drugs and things like that. And she told me about a music artist. We're listening on the radio, and I said, oh, man, that sounds a lot like The Commitments. So I pull it up on my phone, and she's like, seriously, I didn't think anyone else had ever listened to the, those songs. Got Mustang Sally. And I guess what I've come to know in just the last year and a half, um, I wasn't sure that I was going to find love, at least not this soon. Um, it does seem like the universe does line things up 
And she knows that. She's probably laughing. Someone said, of course, I didn't think I was going to get picked. Of course, I got picked for tonight to come up here. And she's my best friend. And as someone else had mentioned uh, just before about um, home is not a place, it's who you're with. And we tell each other all the time. We're very gooey and sappy, and we, it never gets old. And, and we know that. And we love being able to, to be like that with each other. But it is to say, you're home. Um, you feel like home. feels like home. We spend all this time together. And um, I have three daughters. She has two daughters. And we have a lot of daughters together. <laughs> There's a lot going on. They kind of overlap in ages, but uh, from 7 to 16. And uh, I'm excited to see where it goes. But um, it feels like we crossed paths a lot and finally found the moment where we would get together. So, yeah. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to see the storytellers, in addition to hearing them, this entire show is available on the Story Story Night YouTube channel. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and our season sponsor, The Boise Group. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Have a story? Call the storyline at 208-917-1970 and leave a message. Please subscribe to Story Story Night on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.